Welcome to Emergo Radio, a place where a brain-first lifestyle matters, a place of impact and inspiration, a place where your hosts, Dave Kenny and Susan Kenny, coach you to rise above. Hi, and my name is Dave Kenny, the host here at Emergo Radio, and today I'm absolutely delighted to have a guest, Jennifer Kalari who is a child and family therapist and co-founder of Connected Parenting. Jennifer's amazing. We're going to have a great time. Uh, she and I have connected before, and there's so many um, similarities and connections in our work. And uh, she really dives deep in helping parents with children of all ages. And I know that a lot of her work is with younger kids, but it applies to teens and young adults and even mature adults. So uh, I know there's going to be a great exchange here. And she is one of the nation's leading parenting experts. She's highly sought after an international speaker and the founder of Connected Parenting, a child and family therapist with a busy practice based both in Toronto and San Diego. We were just talking about that, how smart she is to live in San Diego. (laughs) And uh, Jennifer is also the author of Connected Parenting, How to Raise a Great Kid. Um, And you're ruining my life, but not really. Surviving the Teenage Years with Connected Parenting. And Jennifer is a frequent guest on Canada's um, AM uh, radio and CBC, Breakfast Television, CTV News, Global, The Morning Show. Uh, her advice can be found in many Canadian and U.S. magazines, Today's Parent, Red Book, Parents Magazine, Canadian Family. You can tell she's got a wealth of experience. She's very sought after, and it's an absolute pleasure, Jennifer, to have you join me here today. I am so excited. Thank you so much for having me. It's it really is neat in in the title connected parenting. Why don't we just start there? What do you what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting because sometimes you hear the word connected and you think, oh, I'm so connected, I'm too connected. But the truth is, it's connection that really is medicine. Uh, and connection is the antidote to addiction, by the way. And it's also the gateway to resilience. So, and and a lot of us think as parents, we we think we're connected and we think we're doing a pretty good job, but there's so much more to it than that. Just knowing you have to do it is not enough. It's hard. It's complicated. And we'll dive into that today. Boy, you've already introduced resilience and addictions and connection. Uh, <laughs> I think we could spend um, a couple of days just talking on those topics. But, sure. but let me start with the question. I mean, we work here at Emergo Recovery. We work with um, parents of of adult children of 18 years and older, but even mature adult children in their 30s and 40s who are still struggling. And the parents are, are really just, their heart breaks and they want more for mm-hmm. uh, their sons and daughters of any age. And I think that goes across the board. But I guess my first question, because I run into this all the time, is how would you define the role of a parent today? Mm, okay. So this is, this is, there's so, this is very rich questions, very layered. So <laughs> a strict definition of a parent, and this is this is really tricky, is a substitute frontal lobe. <laughs> Honestly, that's the best way I can put it. So the frontal lobe's job is to inhibit, organize, regulate, prioritize, take perspective, metacognition, all of that stuff. Those are all sort of the job of the frontal lobe. It takes probably 25 years to grow one of those and probably into your 30s, actually. As your children get older and older, you get to back up a little bit more from uh, being that substitute frontal lobe, but that's really what a parent is. So humans are born premature. They're the only babies that are born premature. They're basically a giant head with a, a little tiny body. They can't roll over. They can't sit up. They can't feed themselves. They can't do anything. 
And outside of Euro, uh, for many, many, many years, there's this invisible umbilical cord and kids stay connected to their parents for a very, very long time. And the reason for that is to grow that frontal lobe. So that's the kind of technical answer to it. Um, and then you have to know as a parent how and when to back out. And that depends on your child. So if your child has uh, significant issues, mental health issues, ADHD, temperament issues, all kinds of things can make that frontal lobe growth take longer, which means you're in the game longer. Uh, you're really in it forever as a parent. And it, it's a really tough job. And if you have a kid that's what I call a gladiator, just feisty and fights back and oppositional and uh, it makes your job to help your child regulate, organize, prioritize, all of that stuff. Um, it just makes it so much more difficult. You're talking a lot about, you know, the umbilical cord, and I call that, you know, dependence. And I think we can all mm -hmm. understand that. And then uh, as a, I also view the parent's role is to help the child create independence and autonomy as they grow older. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's different when they're age eight and they're making their own breakfast on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. There's some autonomy there, but now we're, we're age 26, we're age 36, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 18. And certainly in my work, a lot of parents struggle with letting go yeah. and, 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 and helping their child develop those skills to be independent and autonomous. Yeah. Can you speak to that? I, I can. And it's a complicated reason for this. And I've been, I think a lot about this all the time and I'm always collecting data on this, but first of all, it's, it, uh, there's something that I'm calling um, a pre-life crisis, which I, in my practice, am seeing more and more. So it's really kids starting around 18, right into their twenties and even early thirties, where they're just petrified to grow up petrified of the world out there it's changed so much it's so different um mm -hmm. they are and i you know this is another thing i've been thinking about i'm actually currently writing an article on i, I call it screen poisoning like i really think that the digital world and media and not waiting for anything and um people sort of marketing themselves and constantly those hits of dopamine through a, you know this entire generation growing up with screens is also a very big problem um, the other piece that I feel is there's been a lot of confusing information in the parenting world. So, so I feel like you know kids are different today. Even this generation that are in their early 20s, mid 20s, um, their world looked very different than ours did. Parenting has changed. Kids have changed, and the world has changed. So parents are either trying to use outdated parenting models that maybe our parents might have used that kids today are like, "Are you kidding me? No, that's not working on me," um, or um, the kind of opposite that, which is, you know, I'll talk about in a second how balanced connected parenting is, but the opposite of that is like, you know, things based on attachment and, you know, really understanding your own role and your traumas that you had as a, as a, as a child and how that's impacting your parenting and, you know, really protecting children's sense of self and self-esteem and don't say no and timeouts are bad. And, and, and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying what's happening is that, that alone, standalone, um, has caused, um, parents to really struggle with being frontal lobes because really important limits, loving, uh, consistent, predictable limits are actually essential to good mental health. And so is love and connection. So parents are either trying the old ways, which aren't working, or the, the sort of newer age parenting, which is backfiring. It works beautifully if your child is, is very regulated, if they're just kind of, kind of going through life and they're here, mom, sign here on the dotted line. My homework's done and I'm putting my own ponytail in. If you have kids like that and they exist, then that kind of parenting will work beautifully. But if you have a child that's having trouble with regulation, 
that has enormous emotions that don't fit in their body, that has a brain that won't stop overthinking to the point where they can't stand to be in their own bodies, um, and they tell you to shut up or F off, um, you can meditate all you want. <laughs> it's not going to help you in that situation. So I think what's unique about connected parenting is very balanced. It brings both of those things together. So one of the things I know that you've studied and, and, and you teach is a calm technique about mm-hmm. building, um, regulating child's mood, increasing trust and compliance, which is a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, improve brain function, and actually uh, building a greater immune system. So what is the calm technique? So the calm technique is really, it's basically a mirroring technique, which is a therapy technique, not a parenting technique, although I've morphed it into one and it works beautifully. Um, It's basically a way of talking to another person and think, don't just think about your kids when you're using this, use it on everybody, use it at work, use it on the person who is crabby in front front of the line at Starbucks, like (laughs) use it on anybody you can. Um, And when you do, it releases oxytocin. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a way of deeply listening to another human being so that reward chemicals flow in the bloodstream, literally chemically calming them down and bringing them out of a limbic state, fight or flight and into an oxytocin based frontal lobe state. And that's basically what it is. And I've kind of broken it down and I teach it and it sounds easier than it is. Um, but it's, it's basically a superpower is what it is. I love superpowers. Mm-hmm. So how would this work? My daughter comes home and, you know, she's a, a, a 20 year old daughter, but she's been out way beyond the time and, mm-hmm. and some other things have gone sideways. And, and um, I step forward and say, you know, what's going on and what's happened. Uh, we've been very scared and she explodes. What yeah, we, of course. How do, yeah. I, how do I handle I'm a, that? I'm 20 years old. Leave yep. me alone. You don't have yep. to baby me. Blah, blah. Absolutely. So here, the, the breakdown of this is when we all are the stars of our own movie, basically. <laughs> we all see, we're all the good guys in our story, right? So she's the good guy in her story. You're the good guy in your story. Um, and that doesn't always match. You end up with sort of conflicting waves rather than converging waves. So what, what, what the calm technique really is, it's a way of... Um, soothing the person and making sure you, they, they understand that you have heard their message first. So you're creating emotional safety before you do the hard parenting, which is, hey, you scared us and you can't keep doing this and this is not reasonable and all of that stuff. So let me take this back to, to babies for a second because this is really important. We do this technique, this mirroring very, very naturally with babies. Nobody picks up a baby and goes, what? You know, okay, stop crying now. Uh, you're fine. Uh, everything okay? Like nobody talks to a baby like that. Everybody goes, oh my goodness, look at you, you're cold and your little lips are quivering and whatever. The the baby has no clue what you're saying, but the baby sees on your face and hears in your voice a perfect representation of what they are feeling. Then the mirror neuron cells in the brain, which are these incredible brain cells that help us, they're they're basically the, they help us with empathy, right? They're basically the the foundation of, of social behavior. And when you connect in this way, oxytocin, opiates and natural endorphins release, which are reward chemicals, calming the baby down, chemically calming the baby down and every cell in their body. So they, it's sort of like they're looking around going, what's going on here? There's some weird stuff. What's that shadow? Who's this person that keeps showing up? And then as they, as you show up and you get them, they go, oh, well, this person seems to know what they're doing. I guess I'm safe and I'm okay. And those reward chemicals flow and the baby calms down. Now around the time of language acquisition, we stop doing that. So when our two or three-year-old, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a baby and they're in the bathtub, 
and they're fussing and they're crying. Nobody says to the baby, you know, cut it out. You've had a bath every night for four months. It's Grey's Anatomy. I want to get to my show. Like nobody does that with a baby. You look at the baby and you go, oh my goodness, look at you. You're cold and your little lips are quivering and this towel's scratchy. And the baby doesn't know what you're saying, but the baby feels intuitively that you get them and they calm down. But what do we do with a three-year-old or four-year-old that won't get out of the bath? Get out of the bath, please. Mommy's getting very angry. I'm going to start counting. One, two, <laughs> three, three and a half. Look at your brother. Your brother's already in his pajamas. Why can't you ever listen to me? That's what we do. So we start using language. We stopped the mirroring. The child then gets very upset and we have a clash, right? And it's certainly at that age, which basically mirrors what's going on again as a teenager, by the way. Um, they're pushing back. You can't tell me what to do. I'm happy in the bath. You're mean. And then you have this explosion. And the more you get upset about how they're behaving, the more that they explode. And that's what happens with humans when we're talking to each other and nobody's listening to each other. We keep escalating. And then as a parent, that feels like they're disrespecting me and this is so upsetting and I do so much for them and I haven't slept in a week because they're out every night late and they don't understand what I'm doing for them. And, and you end up in this horrible cycle. So this is what the calm technique is. You connect first, which means you use your face, your body, your shoulders, your facial expressions, everything to demonstrate to that other person that you want to get them first, understand them first before you correct. I always say connect before you correct. Very, very important, especially with strong-willed, what I call gladiators. So that's the first part. You take your agenda, which is, are you kidding me? You're in late. This is unfair. Your mother and I are trying to get to sleep. Like all the stuff we'd want to say, you suspend that. You get to bring it back, just not yet. And you immerse yourself in their experience. And this, this is why it's easier said than done. But once you start to really practice this, it's, it really is magic. Then it's the affect matching. So on your face needs to be a similar look to the look on her face. If she's like, dad, come on, like, what's the, what's the big deal? And you're, you are angry, those two faces don't match, right? If she's sad and you're angry, it doesn't match. So you want to have that affect matching. The next part is the listening part. So this is where you choose your words. You can paraphrase. You can summarize. You can clarify. And you can wonder out loud. But you do all of that with this calm, neutral, and, and connected affect. And then the M, of course, stands for mirroring. So when you've had a moment, we've gone through all of those steps, you will have mirrored. And when you've mirrored properly, what will happen is honestly a shocking amount of the time. The person will go from escalated to de-escalated in about three or four statements. And stress hormones drop, their ability mm -hmm. to think, their ability mm -hmm. to hear you, the ability mm -hmm. to, to uh, create solutions is far greater. Yes, because now you're using your frontal lobe, not your midbrain, right? So the midbrain is, is the emergency response center. <laughs> it doesn't know what's going on. It just feels threatened. The second it feels threatened, it's, it, has no, no, it makes no difference whether it's your dad yelling at you for being late or a, a dinosaur that's you know, chasing you down the street. It makes no difference to the brain. If you are escalated and upset, you're going to assume that you're in danger. These kids are highly limbic all the time anyway with high levels of cortisol. They're all, and they're overthinking everything. So they're always in that sort of readied state. So when you mirror oxytocin releases, so to endorphins and, and uh, all kinds of beautiful reward chemicals, which then um, calms the brain down. So as we said, it increases the, it, it actually decreases cortisol, literally. And there's tons of studies. I can, I can direct you to some studies. It drops cortisol significantly. 
uh, speeds up uh, your neuroplasticity. So kids actually learn and make connections better. They remember things better. So do we. <laughs> it's basically the sort of, it builds resilience. It helps you become more, the more you use this on your kids, the more resilient and emotionally organized they become. I mean, it strengthens the immune system. It makes you look younger. How about that? Like there's just infinite reasons why you should use this. And when you're using this technique on your kids, it bounces back and your brain gets all of those same amazing benefits. One of the most exciting things, um, and we, we, you and I, when we were speaking, talked about brain heart coherence, but when <laughs> oxytocin releases in the brain or in the body, nitric oxide releases, and then endo, I think it's called endothel, derived endothelial relaxant factor, which is basically um, a cardiovascular mole- molecule that, that expands blood flow to the heart causing you to just feel better about the moment that you're in, which has all kinds of cascade of amazing things that happen in your body. So um, not only does it help to deescalate, and by the way, with connected parenting, that's just the bonus. That's literally just the bonus. The real reason for pulling this into your repertoire as a parent and as a human being actually um, is that over time, then you have resilience. You start to see growth and change and this capacity to just have things roll off you that were not rolling off you before. And what I hear the, the, the foundation here is the parent is a leader in this and, and mm-hmm. versus being reactive to it. And, yeah. and there is a strategy and a plan. Uh, I talk a lot and coach a lot about having that plan before the emotions hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're, if you're trying to do that in, in a reactive way, it, it never works out for, for the parents or the, or the, no. uh, a child of any age. No. And what ends up happening is you become part of the way that your child regulates your, your, your teenager or your 25 year old. So they're having a very difficult time coping. Their emotions are enormous. They, it's like a thunderstorm in their body. It's like an emotional seizure. They're overcome with it. They can't deal with it. So what happens is, and I've had so many kids say this is I can't feel better until I'm sure that my mother or my father, but it's often the mother feels as horrible as I feel. It's like they have to release it um, and hand it over to the other parent. And then when the parent starts yelling or screaming or getting upset or threatening or whatever ends up happening, they get a blast of adrenaline. Adrenaline is a stimulant that stimulates the frontal lobe, just like ADHD medication, giving a jolt of electricity to the frontal lobe and bringing it back online. But meanwhile, the parent is a dish rag on the floor crying their eyes out you know, hating themselves and worried for their child. And that's the other piece that I just want to speak to is as a parent, it's funny, sometimes when kids are littler, it's almost easier. You can pull them on their, on your lap. You know, you can send them to their room. It's so different. I, I, can, you att- have, I can attest to this. Yeah, I agree. It's so true. And when you have an adult child or an older um, child, it's, it's devastatingly, um, I can't even put words to it, that the pit in the stomach that parents live with. It is ever present. It is there when you go to sleep. It is there when you open your eyes. You can't think, you can't function. You are absolutely consumed with worry and concern uh, for your child. And you're vacillating between terror and seeing their life flash before your eyes, anger with how they're destroying your, your freedom and your life after all you've done for them. And then just sadness, just sadness. It's it's really, really tough and it's getting tougher. Um. 
you talk about the opposite of addiction is connection and and just a prelude to that we we believe this and teachers we know know this in the world mm-hmm. of addiction and neuroscience mm-hmm. and and addiction can be anything and not not you know not necessarily the three big ones of smoking and drugs and and drinking now we've got social media and gaming and mm-hmm. and 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 everything else but we do know uh, there was a there was a study uh, with rats and uh, they were given morphine and water and the rats went ran to the morphine nine out of ten of them uh, became addicted and and classic a definition of that and ended up killing or dying killing themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with morphine and water. Doctor Bruce Alexander in the eighties went wait a minute yeah. this is a little bit different and uh, we don't normally live in a cage so he created Rat Park about two hundred times the size tunnels toys mm-hmm. friends connections sex all of the all of these things but put water and put morphine water in and only one out of the 10 rats took to the morphine water and and also uh, marion diamond's work on neuroplasticity can show that connections are part of connections and love are part of actually having a bigger brain and when mm-hmm. we don't have that when we're in a uh, impoverished environment we have a smaller brain so let yes. I me mean, where does that fit with your work and what you said is the opposite of addiction is connection? Yeah, which you just talked about with that study, right? So we humans are social beings, okay? We feel good when we're, when we're good with our people. When we're not good with our people, we don't feel good. We need each other. We are heard together. We feel each other's energy. Um, we, we need each other. And, you know, it, here's a really good example, and, and not to get too dark, but on 9-11, we can't remember most days out of our life, but every single one of us remembers where they were, what they were doing on 9-11. And the first thing we did is we ran to our group, to our people. We got together. Absolutely. Right? We, we wanted to feel a part of something. Connected. And so, yeah, absolutely. And, and the only reason any of us are here is because somebody loved us. At least somebody cared enough to feed us and help us when we got hurt. Um, so it is everything to us. And it is profoundly everything in the teenage years. Uh, now, one of the real difficulties, and I'm sure you know all of this too, is that you know, adolescence is not a developmental stage. It is a Western phenomenon. So in most cultures in the world, you are a child, and then you are an apprentice adult. In the West, you are a child, and then you're an adolescent, and you're an adolescent now pretty much way into almost, I guess, way into your 30s. So it is this vague, strange time where you don't really have a role. And so the way that it used to be for us, let's say, I don't know, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, is, you know, people went to school, they went to school till the eighth grade, and then maybe they went on, but maybe they apprenticed with their uncles and their dads, and they worked in the farms, and they worked in the fields, and they worked in the factories with their uncles, and they wanted to prove they were a man, and the, the girls would work alongside their aunts and, and had their trousseau, this case full of things that they were going to need when they were an adult. And there was this desire to be part of the adult community, to be accepted by the adult community and to impress the adult community. And biologically, that's how it's supposed to work because that hierarchy is in our own brain as well, right? You've got your frontal lobe and you've got your midbrain and the frontal lobe's job is to parent yourself. And so we parent for as long as we need to until our child is capable and has a fully grown frontal lobe and can parent themselves and then become a parent themselves to a child themselves. So that has got flipped on its head. I think it's in 1950s. Um, that was when the term teenager was actually coined. Um, and what happened is that teenagers then became, and I'm not saying kids shouldn't go to high school, but what started happening is kids now spent more time with each other, 
less time with significant adults. And if there were, it was with a different adult every hour for every class. Um, and that hierarchy started to change. So now children, the, these teenagers were not oriented to their uncles, their aunts, their grandfathers. They became oriented to each other. But the problem is there's not a fully formed frontal lobe among them, right? So they're all getting together. My adults are mean. My dad's an idiot. They don't know anything. And I, I can, I, you know, I was not a very rebellious teenager, but I remember fully thinking that adults didn't know what they were talking about. They were silly, foolish people who didn't know anything. So it's this time where they sort of orient to each other. It is grossly exaggerated now with social media and, uh, you know, the, all of the Instagram, Snapchat, and they're, they're never away from their phones. They're looking for that ding every five seconds. We'll talk about the dopamine situation in a moment. But now teenagers are very oriented to each other, not to their parents. And that's caused some major, major problems in terms of mental health. So this generation, as you know, are the least healthy generation of any generation before, inclu including those born during the war and the Depression. It really is interesting. Um, and uh, the dependency we see happening deeper in life, in, which, is, which is, I love what you said, talking about the natural hierarchy of, of life. Mm -hmm. It's getting turned, it is turned upside down. Um, and, I know, and I know studies that, that uh, the current television and, you know, the Simpson type generation, which is bashing parents and their idiots, um, has helped flip this. Mm -hmm. and, and attributed to this. And, yes. and when that hierarchy is out of place, the whole family's in disarray. It's a mess. Well, it, it's interesting because polarization, polarization is a huge problem everywhere on, in the world today. But, and it certainly happens in families. But as a family therapist, I've watched this. I've been, a, I've been in, doing this work for about 30 years. And I've watched different generations of kids grow up. And I'm most concerned about this younger generation right now, the ones who are four, five, and six right now. Um, but this generation, I mean, they grew up with television programs that made adults look like stupid idiots and the, the dads were the worst. You know, the kids had all the answers. The kids were smart Alex and sarcastic. And in the end, this, you know, everything was solved by the children. You know, when I grew up, it was, you know, I don't know Waltons and Brady Bunch and you know, trouble happened, but it was the adults that had the answers and it was the adults that kept kids feeling safe and feeling comfortable. So, What's happening is children have literally grown up with their parents asking them, you know, what car should we get? And what time would you like to go to bed? And, you know, running to the teacher every time something isn't right and, and making sure they're invited to every birthday party and solving every single problem so that, you know, my big issue with this is if you solve, and, and this is not parents individually, you know, don't need to feel bad about this. This is a collective. This is, how, this is a very, um, this has been the way we've all been parenting in the last 25 years for sure. That this kind of overparenting, this hyperparenting, which has not corrected yet, by the way, has created a generation of children who do not have neurological hardware to handle trouble. And guess what? Trouble always comes. Adversity, adversity is part of life. It is absolutely health. Healthy adversity is essential to good mental health. I'll, I would go that far to say that. And you need those neural heart. You need that that programming. You need that neurological hardware to handle trouble. And so, if you can't teach your kids some really good lessons at home while they're kids, life will. And life is a much harsher teacher. Yeah. And, and what we, what we find here is that uh, they actually shut down. It's overwhelming. And, and there's an expectation that somebody is going to fix it. And then uh, typically um, in our work, the, the, the mothers who are more natural caregivers continue in this rescuing role, mm -hmm. but, 
when they continue to rescue a child, there's also a, a, a subliminal message that you're not capable or you're not able. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, a, a really damaging thing to the ability mm-hmm. of resilience and overcoming challenge and removing consequences from mm-hmm. actions, which is a terrible thing because a, a, there are consequences to every action or non-action and some yeah. are good. If I go yeah. to the gym five days a week, there's a good consequence. If I yeah. eat ice cream five days a week, there's not so that's, good at that's right. Absolutely. And that's the end of part one today of our series with Jennifer Kalari of Connected Parenting. And please join us next week for part two of our deep, provocative conversation with Jennifer on more about parenting and connected parenting. Again, my name is Dave Kenny, and I'm with Mergo Radio. And it's been a pleasure to hang out with you today. In gratitude, we thank you for joining us on Emergo Radio, a place where you rise above with your hosts, Dave Kenny and Susan Kenny. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and learn. Want more? You can reach us at emergoradio.com. That's E-M-E-R-G-O radio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.